Hello, my name is Eva, and welcome to the fourth and concluding episode on the history of the Justinian plague. Last time, we left off in the autumn of 542, as the storm of the plague finally waned in Constantinople. But even as the tidal wave of calamity retreated, it left a devastated city behind, with the slow, cold grip of the aftermath taking hold. By the autumn of 542, Constantinople's hinterland was quiet. For in those arable lands, farmers and their labourers had been struck down in as many numbers as the rest of the population. And this, of course, meant that the harvests rotted ungathered in the fields, while the citizens within the city walls could await a harsh winter with no produce being carried into the city. Shipment of grain from Egypt had also been disrupted, as there were fewer experienced sailors to steer the ships through the unpredictable waters of the Mediterranean, so import of food became highly irregular. With less grain and fewer bakers to bake, came the risk of a thriving black market for those who could afford it and starvation to the many who could not. As with many other sudden great losses of life in late antiquity and the medieval age, labor wages rose as the death of many led those who survived to be in high demand. But even as peasants demanded more equitable rights for their rather heavy duties, the nobility introduced laws which sought to curb the social and economic rise of the peasantry. So the plague may have given peasants an opportunity to ask for more money, but the plague also made the division between rich and poor even more harshly visible, as the rich and the nobility were more efficiently able to overcome the setbacks of the plague. So, financially and socially, the plague halted the progress of the Byzantine Empire for decades. The empire did not become impoverished, but it did not thrive again for a century, leaving a corridor open for the emerging Arabic conquests to consolidate in the eastern provinces. As the Arabic fiefdoms battled and won against that traditional enemy of the old Persians. The result of this would be an ever-decreasing Byzantine empire in terms of territory and connected networks, which saw the Byzantines no longer ruling supreme in the Mediterranean and no longer being able to securely move their gold on the Silk Roads, as I mentioned on the previous episode. And, as I also mentioned in previous episodes, the Emperor Justinian resumed his battle plans as soon as he himself had recovered from the plague which he contracted in the spring of 542. But already in the following spring in 543, he was once again poring over his war maps with aspirations 
of conquest in the West and dreams of battling back the Persians in the East. But the emperor was soon to discover that he could not, as he expected, simply pick up where he had left off. For the plague had decimated the army, and not only in sheer numbers, but also in the collective skill of the once well-oiled Byzantine war machine. This meant that there were simply fewer legions to dispatch to a faraway campaign, and it allowed a tribe such as the Lombards, a Germanic people, to invade the northern parts of Italy and thereby split the Italian peninsula into many smaller fiefdoms. Justinian could do little about it. There were simply too few commanders and too few men, and they would not be replaced during the emperor's lifetime. In fact, it would take the Byzantine Empire a century or more to make up for the loss of the 250,000 lives which perished during the plague. This made the empire far more vulnerable on its frontiers, and this, of course, would prove dangerous as land in the east was lost to the new Arabic kingdoms, while the Germanic tribes consolidated their powers in the west culminating, as we know, some 250 years later, as Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor. And it was Charlemagne, rather than Justinian, as Justinian had hoped, who would be remembered as the most successful inheritor of the legacy of the Western Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire itself would evolve into a decidedly Latin-leaning state, while the Byzantine Empire grew ever more Greek Orthodox in religious inclination. The plague drastically changed religious architecture as well, with depictions of horror and death gaining an ever more prominent display in sculptures and paintings. And the practice of religious belief was also affected by the plague. Constantinople was always a visibly religious city with numerous religious celebrations and churches. But the fervor of the believers soared to new heights during those desperate days of the plague when prayers for deliverance were chanted day and night by priests and laymen alike. In the immediate aftermath of the plague, Religious outpouring was also quite strong through public prayers. However, according to such contemporary scholars as Procobius, this heightened religious observance only lasted one season after the plague. Or as he wrote, as people turned sharply about and reverted once more to their baseness of hearts, altogether surpassing themselves in villainy, and in lawlessness of every sort. It has to be said that Procopius in general wrote quite negatively about people's attitudes during the reign of Justinian. It was a projection of sorts of his intense dislike of Justinian himself, whom he saw 
are setting a bad example with uncouth manners ill-becoming of an emperor. In fact, Procopius blamed the plague and its aftermath on Justinian's misrule of the empire. So while Procopius, as a contemporary of the plague, has left us invaluable information about the plague's progression and its effect on the city, Procopius also seasoned his accounts with his own bias and wild speculations on how the empire might have fared had not the calamity of the plague assaulted Constantinople and left it bereft of might and glory for years. But it was not only contemporary historians who speculated on what could have been. Later historians, too, have indulged in that ever-exciting game of historical what-if. What would have happened to the Byzantine Empire had not the plague raged through the city? If the plague had not occurred, would Justinian have succeeded in conquering some of the former Western Roman Empire? And in so doing, might he then have altered the trajectory of the Carolingian dynasties, which would later form the bedrock of the French kingdoms? And would this in turn have halted or slowed the formation of the Germanic kingdoms? And might that in turn have had a bearing on the Viking Age some 200 years later. These are all speculations, but it is quite incredible to think that one disastrous spring in 542 and the subsequent 50 years of returning plague might have made a decisive difference in which language, what form of governance and fiefdoms would have dominated Europe in the medieval age. But the plague did come to Constantinople, and it did wipe out half the known population of Europe at that time. And one can wonder if the Justinian plague in some ways underpinned the decline of the last vestiges of late antiquity and paved the way for the historical period that we know today as the Middle Ages. I do hope you enjoyed this journey through 6th century Constantinople during the plague. I hope you liked this four-part series. If you did, please consider subscribing to this podcast, Restless Times in History. And perhaps tell a friend about this podcast. Until next time, I have been Eva and thanks so much for listening.